Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. GM, I'm Dan Roberts. I'm Stacey Elliott. And I'm Stephen Graves. And this is GM from Decrypt. All right, GM, GM, welcome back. And welcome, Stephen, Stephen Graves. GM, Dan. Come on down. Great to have you as a new rotating co-host here on the pod. I think listeners are going to love hearing your silky smooth British accent. And we have a great guest for your, your first episode here. It's Snowfro, real name Eric Calderon, the founder of Artblocks, very big in the NFT art world. Yeah, and hugely excited to hear what he has to say about the developing world of NFT art and, uh, and how Artblocks is evolving during the bear market. Yeah, big time. You know, there was, there was an obvious frenzy a year ago that I think everyone could see wasn't going to last. But I think he'll be someone great to ask him about kind of the narratives, because the mistake is the people who now look at the market and they say, oh, see, see, NFTs were a bubble and it's dead. And, you know, actually, even with prices down, in many cases, we're seeing all kinds of new use cases, cool new collections. And, you know, even at Artblocks, you know, now they have Squiggles, which is a, a newer launch. I think they're up to a lot of interesting things. Yeah. And I think artists uh, possibly relieved that the speculative frenzy is over because it allows them to focus on the art itself. A little more. Yeah, yeah. And I think in some ways, we're probably relieved to see it. I mean, for a while there, it was like, every day, another story to write on a multi-million dollar sale of a single CryptoPunk, which as we record this, we're still seeing that, you know, we just saw a $2.5 million purchase of one. But I do think that maybe there's a splash of realism. And, and we're starting to hear about, you know, collections not even necessarily wanting to see speculators of that type buying it. Absolutely. Well, let's bring them on. Okay, Eric Calderon, GM, welcome to the program. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, great to have you. And this is Stephen Graves's inaugural episode as a co-host. So GM, Stephen. GM, everyone. Eric, let's start this way. You know, we're big at Decrypt on education and on explaining concepts to everyone in crypto, regardless of their understanding level. How do you explain generative art? What is generative art to a layperson? Uh, to explain generative art, you have to explain algorithmic art, which, you know, at the very root, what you're seeing a lot of in the NFT space is a visual or audio output that was generated using computer code. So, you know, you can, you can jump on Photoshop and get a, get a brush and draw on the screen and create a visual output, or you can open up a text editor and type a bunch of words, often cryptic sounding words into a screen and press play or press run and produce a visual uh, output. So algorithmic art is the idea or, you know, creative coding, um, code art, there's a lot of different ways that it's referred to, is the idea that you're creating something on a screen and then, you know, in the future, not just on a screen, but using code, using programmatic instructions that you tell a computer what to do. And generative art is just kind of like a, 
another layer on top of that where instead of deliberately producing a specific outcome with code, you add a lot of variability to that algorithm so that it produces variable outcomes every time that you click refresh you get a new kind of randomly generated outcome. And on a similarly educational note, what is for the layperson the Artblocks platform and how does it differ from some of the uh, the other sort of NFT projects and platforms we've seen around, like the Board Ape Yacht Club, for instance? So Artblocks specifically, uh, you know, it started as a hobby of very niche, nerdy concept of wanting to put an algorithm on the blockchain Essentially to prove, you know, like we just talked about the idea that, you know, you give instructions to a computer and it produces an output. I wanted to be able to prove the instructions that were given to the computer to provide that output. And so what Artblocks does is it allows an artist to create a project, an empty shell of a project, and upload their code. And it's running that code that generates the visual or audio output that you see. That changes things twofold for this space. Number one... Nobody knows what you're going to get until you get it. So the collector is actually here to purchase the artwork and actually generate it for the first time. The artist has never seen that specific output. And what's different here is that in the, in the more traditional NFT, you have a token that is created in advance. Let's say on amazing platforms like Super Rare or Known Origin, where uh, an artist generates a visual output and then mint a token that represents that artwork and then lists it for sale on the market. So every single iteration, every single output requires kind of a manual process on behalf of the artist. With art blocks, the tokens don't exist until they're purchased. So there's a one-time uploading of the code by the artist. And then after that moment, the collector comes and says, Ooh, I really like what I see here. I want to get one of these as well. And they're willing to kind of try their luck because, you know, if their favorite color is yellow, they might get a red one. But the idea is that you are, as the collector, contributing to the birth of a collection that you and the artist are experiencing at the same time. So let's drill down into that. I mean, when we talk about art, obviously there's there's no accounting for taste, right? And, And there's no way of being sure what someone will like visually. And it sounds like the appeal here, I mean, there's randomness, but there's also a participation aspect. Now, of course, even once you, you know, once you spit out, this is what it looks like, someone might say, oh, it turns out this one isn't my taste. You know, I've seen some of the art blocks works that I love and I go, wow. And then someone says, mm, that, that one doesn't do as much for me. You know, so is there a sort of profile of an art blocks collector that's different from someone who would buy one of these, you know, cartoon style? There's a certain artistic look to some of the most prominent PFP projects? And do you think that the Artblocks collector is someone who they're also partially turned on by the tech behind the visual? I I definitely think the tech is interesting to the Artblocks collector, at least a little bit more interesting than your, your traditional kind of PFP collector. I think that lots of PFPs are artistic and some of them might actually be art. And I think the distinction there is what is the intent behind the creator that to me is the difference between something that is purely a PFP, maybe meant to have utility and something that's meant to be framed and put on your wall. I don't have a board eight, but if I did, I would sure as hell print it and frame it and put it on my wall because I also like to look at things, not just uh, when I'm on, when I'm on discord, you know, for every person that doesn't like the mint, there's someone else that generally does. And sometimes that might be because maybe that mint is less expensive than other ones on the secondary market, because maybe it's less, 
appealing to the to the general public. And there's uh, a lot of people that are just really excited and interested to participate in this space. So we we actually have a lot of collectors in the art blocks world that they'll mint on the primary for fun, but the majority of their collecting happens on the secondary market, which is more like the traditional NFT standard, right? And uh, so they'll they'll say, yeah, I might take a hit here and have to pay a premium, but if I want a yellow one, I get a yellow one and I get to scroll through and pick the ones that I want. I think that there's value in that as well. I just truly enjoy that element of surprise personally and that and and a lot of what Artblocks has been built on is built on that specific element of surprise. There's a lot of really fun new ways to explore minting generative algorithms, uh, new and old ways. And something that, you know, I've kind of put my foot down to a degree is saying, hey, yeah, these are all really fun, but Artblocks was built on this like moment of birth and generation at the moment of minting. And that that's something that we've, we believe strongly uh, as being a core, a core principle of how Artblocks pieces are minted. I guess picking up on on that, are you relieved that the uh, the sort of speculative bubble around NFTs appears to have burst, and that the the crazy valuations that we were getting seem to have sort of tailed off a bit? I, I don't want anyone to get hurt, right? So I, I at no point did I during that speculative cycle, even though I was trying to at least just kind of like rationally express myself and like you know rationally try to demonstrate what markets do. But at no point was I hoping that somebody would buy something expensive and then like see the value of their purchase go down, right? But at the same time, it felt unreasonable. It felt unsustainable, the growth that Artblocks experienced in September and October. And um, while a lot of early collectors made a bunch of money and, you know, congratulations to them for having the foresight of kind of, you know, starting to collect Artblocks early, from a mental health perspective, it wasn't healthy for Art Blocks as a team. It wasn't healthy for Art Blocks artists either. Yeah, they were about to make a bunch of money on a drop, but that actually is not always healthy, especially when you question the actual value of the work. I guess to answer that, though, crypto is, is so cyclical. And what I'm trying to do and what I dedicate most of my waking moments to, especially how much I travel, is to try to make sure that Art Blocks can transcend crypto so that art blocks is in and of itself generating artwork that can be appreciated as artwork in and of itself. And that artwork can be labeled as art, not crypto art or even generative art in some cases, but just art. And as a result of that, the the times that are calmer make it much easier for me to have rational conversations with human beings about art because it leaves a weird taste in people's mouths to see what happened in September and October. But again, due to the cyclical nature of crypto, just in the last few weeks, Artblocks has kind of started to have another resurgence. And again, we want everyone to be happy. I really want everybody to be happy, but you know, it's probably going to set us back a little bit again, if it continues to grow in the way that it's growing, it, you know, a few people will find a lot of success. Some people might even be able to recover from what they bought in September and October when things were really crazy. But the conversation shifts again in my travels and having conversations with people in the contemporary art world to kind of bring value to art blocks outside of our little echo chamber. The conversation shifts again to the speculation. We don't have a problem with speculation. We realize that people buy even art in the traditional art world with, you know, the idea that it's not going to go down in value, but, um, 
we want to make it clear that that's not actually why we're here. And we're, we're happy when you make a bunch of money and we, we're gutted when you lose a bunch of money, but like those things are actually extraneous to like what our purpose is, which is to just host amazing art by amazing artists in this new way that has proven to be really interesting for, for, for communities to acquire art. Back in January, you, you told us, um, you know, it's not going to be like this all the time. There will be a bear market and we're in the bear market now. How are you guys weathering the storm and, and what's next for the platform? We're hiring. And wow, hiring, not firing. Yeah, and not being presented with incredibly arrogant and presumptuous, you know, counter offers. Like, you know, it's it's interesting because you know, we want our blocks to grow and we realize that hey, like time is of the essence. And so, you know, you actually don't have the luxury of sitting back during a bull market and saying, we're not hiring until the next bear market because people are being unreasonable with their salary expectations because then you're left behind. Like there is actually a world where you're completely left behind. So you have to balance that. But, you know, I've been in business for 20 years. I've had my own company now for like you know 20 years almost. And I've seen it. I've seen cycles. I've seen macro economies fall apart in 2018. I'm in Houston. So, you know, 2000. 13, 14 was a little weird too with like what happened with the oil industry. And I know that incredibly talented people get hired for incredible amounts of money that become unsustainable during those downtimes. And that doesn't mean that those people are any less valuable or any less incredible. It just means that when you're looking at potentially having to let go of 10 people because you want to keep this one superstar because you paid them too much, you start to question, okay, well, maybe I can't afford to pay that person that much because these other people are actually making normal, you know, living. And so uh, in, in this economy, we are thriving in that we are, we have the luxury and we're very, very lucky. And we're very like cognizant of how lucky we are to potentially not to be, to be in the hiring mode. And one really beautiful example of this is that we recently brought on an artistic director. And, you know, one of the things that really distinguishes Artblocks from a lot of the platforms that are out there is that we are, as a team, multiple people from our team are actively involved in every single project that you see on Artblocks. From the very beginning, onboarding to making sure it's resolution agnostic to the day of release, there's active conversations, mission control, all of that. And one thing that we've seen is that we've seen incredible art appear on our blocks. Incredible artists appear on our blocks. Some of them have traditional art backgrounds. And so they're, they're good. They're fine on their own. Although everybody could, you know, could always, I guess, learn more, but a lot of them are computer scientists that realize they have a creative side to them and they're not artists, right? Like, I mean, just, just like I never considered myself really an artist before, but they're getting recognition as such. And so we have an artistic director now, his name is Jordan. He's this amazing human being. And we had the privilege during a really rough time to hire someone that's going to help artists with their career. Because again, we're here for the sake of art. And what does that mean? That means that we have to help educate artists on how to handle their career, to give critique, to give feedback, to help them through not just like their, you know, artistic, their art project, but their artistic career. And so we're weathering it fine. We're very, very, very lucky to be in this position. We're not taking anything for granted you know, we're really excited to maybe be able to grow the team, the engineering team, even a little bit more. You know, I remember in the middle of the, the, the craziness last year, I'd talk to people like, how many engineers do you have? A hundred. What? Like, you know, we struggle to get, you know, the 10 that we have, but because we're, you know, we're very selective and culture is so important to us. And um, yeah, so yeah, we're, 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 we're excited. We're lucky and we feel very privileged to be in the position that we're in. There's uh, Eric, there's a few different things you've said that all to me fall under the umbrella of kind of 
the push and pull between the traditional art world and the NFT art world. Uh, first of all, it's interesting that you said if you were someone who owned an ape and you're not, you'd print it out because art blocks, when you look at them, especially if, if you look at somebody, you think that's really pretty. They're the kind of artwork that I would think someone would put in a frame on their wall. And yet you kind of wonder, well, wait a minute, then are we defeating the point when you say it's digital art, it's digital only. And then it's like, but you might want to display it physically. And, you know, Steven's done some fun trips to physical art galleries in London that are now doing NFT exhibitions. And I think some people see that and they go, well, wait a minute, you know, I, I thought the whole value prophecy you tell people it's different, it's digital only, and and that's okay. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like we spent all this time getting people to wrap their minds around the idea that something digital only can have as much value, but then you say, and you could still frame it on your wall if you want. And it's sort of, you know, you, you wonder if those two worlds are finally reconciling more. I mean, similarly, when you say you never would have called yourself an artist in the past, and yet, you know, you were at our Camp Decrypt event in Wyoming, and you were drawing and doing art on your tablet, you know, listening to panels, <laughs> sitting in a tent. And I thought, oh, that was great. So, you know, I guess I'm asking whether you think that the NFT art explosion has changed the way that some people view these definitions and what what people do with the art they pay for. I think that's awesome to, to, to frame it this way. Like we have we have this this movement, this frothy, intense explosion of this technology that we're all really enjoying, whether from a nerdy perspective or from a financial perspective, right? But like everybody's generally enjoying the concept, the process, even if you're down right now on the value of your portfolio, there was a time where you were pretty excited about this. And during that time, we don't really work out a lot of the nuances in what we're doing. Now, especially when things calm down a little bit, you get to take a step back and like take a breath and think, okay, first of all, we are experiencing a renaissance, not just of generative art, but of digital art, medium that has been around for a really long time, but did not get recognition from the contemporary and the traditional art world in the same way that sculpture and painting and other forms. There's a theme or was, or maybe it's changing, that there is no soul in digital art, and especially no soul in generative art, if you could make a thousand pieces with one algorithm. I mean, you know, that's just so robotic and so, like, you know, sterile. But the reality is that people are starting to appreciate the craft that goes into creating something beautiful on a screen and realizing that just because a screen does what you tell it to do doesn't mean that anybody can instruct a computer to do something beautiful. And part of that nuance then says, hey, like, does this art look good on paper? A board ape, a crypto punk looks fantastic on paper. It doesn't use millions of colors. A chromy squiggle, not so much. I mean, I actually love them printed, but like there's a huge amount of color spectrum in there and not all of those colors are reproduced correctly by the printer. You know what looks fantastic on paper is the, the Ringers collection by Dmitry Cherniak. It's it's not that many colors. It's simple. If you really print it with a high, 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 high quality printer, you get these really crisp lines. So I think that as we take a step back and you say, you know, maybe in this digital or NFT world, people were like, no, this is different. This is going to be on our screens. I think, A, it was on our screens because we were buying so much art, we didn't really have time to even think about or process how we were going to display it. And I'm a perfect example of that. I think I have at this point like 2,600 art blocks NFTs alone just from like all of my secondary market royalties going right back into supporting these artists for a long time. And if you then think like every one of them should be treated the same, you're wrong. And a really good example, 
Elida Sun is one of our artists, one of our curated artists that created a piece. Her background is in projections and projection mapping. And she created this really beautiful piece called Glitch Crystal Monsters. And it's wonderful on the screen. But if you see it projected into a corner of a room through a projector, it takes a whole nother life to it that's completely incomparable to watching it on a flat screen. And that was that is representative of her career. And so a lot of what digital does is it creates optionality that sculpture and oil on canvas doesn't do. And we are just now starting to explore that. Artblocks, for example, started adding a category on the website that artists can fill out to express their preferred display. Because there are artists that have neon colors on a screen that would probably die a little bit inside to see their work printed, even on the highest quality printers. Then you have interactive artworks that, yeah, sure, you could find a nice frame to freeze it at and make that be the art. But the reality is that that art is meant to be moving. A perfect example is this piece behind me. I wanted to put four of them together just to kind of demonstrate something. But this is a piece where those little heads, they just kind of bobble up and down and it's so graceful and it's so nice. And like, this is a disservice to this artwork, right? right? So printed would be a disservice in my opinion to that artwork. So I, I think there's just the, the idea is as, as the, as the industry evolves, as we recognize not generative, not NFT art, but like just digital art as a medium, as a totally acceptable big league form of expression, there's going to be now nuances in the way that people display their art and appreciate their art and experience and live with their art. And the last thing I'll say there is that, you know, for the first time we have screens that doesn't look like you have a TV screen in your living room to show art. You know, the, the, the new, the 2022 Samsung frame has a matte screen on it. Like, no, it's probably not great for watching movies. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, I haven't tried, but for displaying art, it's stunning. It doesn't glare. It just, it's, it, and so like, I'm done now needing the technology to catch up. The technology is exactly where it needs to be. I hang one screen on my wall in my living room and they have these really nice frames that you put around it. And for the first time in my life, I have a digital screen in my living room and it doesn't feel like I have a tele, like a second television. It just feels like I have a work of art hanging in the living room. So things are evolving. Things are changing very quickly. And I think that as the space gets more sophisticated, we're going to actually like lean into some of these things. and people are really going to learn how to live with their art. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's interesting you mentioned display standards because that's very similar to what's been going on in the in the film world recently with uh, filmmakers like Chris Nolan and Tom Cruise arguing with Netflix and the, the TV manufacturers over like motion smoothing and things like that and trying to get them to put standard movie modes on their on their displays but you mentioned the craft of uh, digital art earlier and i wanted to circle back to that because one of the things i find really interesting is the way that artists apply new technologies and find interesting new things to do with them whether that be new pigments or, or new tools like photoshop 
And within NFT specifically, we're starting to see some interesting technological developments above and beyond the, the basic technology. So you're getting things like dynamic living NFTs, you're getting encrypted NFTs. And I was wondering if any of those new technologies have you excited for their artistic potential? Like what's the new brush for digital artists working in the NFT space? So all of the technologies get me excited. <laughs> all of them do. I think that evolving or dynamic NFTs are a beautiful thing. I think that they are going to start maybe overlapping more with the film industry than they are the, you know, the, the like static or the, you know, kind of contemporary art world because there's a story to be told over time. And that story has to be thought through through its entire storyline from the very beginning. And so I think there's some kind of overlap there. You know, the technology though, I don't, I don't often conflate the technology with the paintbrush in the sense that, yes, generative art, creative coding, P5JS as a library to me, that's like a paintbrush that we use as generative artists. The technology is like the it's like the operating system. And so as smart contracts evolve and get more advanced and more exciting stuff happens on them, it's just like when you have new features that are added to a computer or whatever, the artist then gets to implement their brush kind of in a new way. And so a lot of artists won't do that. They don't need to or want to. A lot of artists are perfectly satisfied in their medium. It's kind of like, you know, if you've been sculpting with a certain kind of clay your whole life and a new innovative clay comes out, you might actually just be comfortable with your craft. And that doesn't mean that you are not any better of an artist just because you didn't adapt to it. But as these new things come about, it gives people the opportunity to get exposure by being innovators first to market with these new technologies. And as the space gets exponentially more noisy, those will be the, the avenues that artists will take to be able to break into the space because it's getting harder and harder as there's more and more projects released every single day. So I'm, I embrace all of the technology. Um, a lot of the technology, you know, is innovative and is meant to make it better for artists to release. But in reality, it, it, it might not be better just because it's new doesn't mean it's better. And I think that oftentimes platforms miss the boat a little bit, but they're like, Ooh, I have this new way of, you know, minting generative art, it's better, it's whatever. It's like, well, you know, there's been a lot of innovation in the minting process since our block started. And we've really stuck to our roots because I truly believe that minting at the moment of creation or creation at the moment of minting is actually part of the value proposition of this experience that we're having. And uh, I, I love all the experiments and I love all the other things. And I in, in, encourage platforms to experiment and I will participate in all of those experiments. So a lot of those innovations actually don't affect how our blocks will proceed because we actually, it's a core, it's a core tenet of ours, like to operate in this way, no matter how much uh, innovation there is in the space. Eric, let's zoom out a little bit. And, you know, we like to also talk to people about who they are outside crypto, God forbid. Ooh. Tell us a little bit. Uh, first of all, we ask everyone, if you remember it, what was the very first moment that you caught the crypto bug and and heard about it? And, you know, what were you doing in your life at that time? I mean, I'm also asking kind of who you were pre art blocks and, and what you did in the past. Well, in 2004, I started a ceramic tile company called Lenovo Tile in Houston, Texas. Uh, I started it with my dad and um, I started importing high tech kind of contemporary tile products from Spain and Italy. And I built a 
clientele list of around 2,000 interior designers and architects in the Houston area with a team of 15 people. And I spent my first 18 professional years of my life doing that. And I'm actually still in the space now, although unfortunately I get to dedicate zero time to that business. It still operates and it still runs and it's still part of my, um, my process of getting here. My first hearing of crypto, I was with my brother probably 2013 and he mentioned something about mining Bitcoin with thumb drives, but that it was getting too late to mine with a thumb drive. And I was like, okay, well, why are you telling me? He's like, you can buy these thumb drives, but like, they don't really do much anymore. And I'm like, ah, that sounds like it would have been really cool to know that a year ago. And so then, you know, but then, you know, he, he and I have always kind of really noodled on technology. And uh, it, it was just, I just remember the conversation here at Papacito's restaurant, like as if it was yesterday. And, and I never actually gave it the time of day. He kind of stayed involved. In 2016, December 2016, I got this really weird thought where I, well, first of all, I read an article about Bitcoin. Like I actually read something. It wasn't just like this you know, thing. And I was like, oh man. And I also feel like the world is on fire. I, I felt the world has been on fire for a really long time. And I'm starting to trust less and less. I'm not like a tin foil hat person, but like uh, I also just am I'm getting to a point where I just don't trust anything that anybody politicians tell me at this point. And so, uh, and that's kind of started around that time. And, you know, I had just had a child, uh, my first kid. And I just remember this crazy desire to own one Bitcoin by the, the like midnight of the end of 2016, right? So by the beginning of 2017, and I think I had, you know, Coinbase, like there was limits to how much you could buy in a certain amount of time, whatever. I just remember literally I had had a few drinks and I bought my like, I don't know if it, last second half of a Bitcoin or, you know, and Bitcoin was a thousand bucks or something like that, um, right at midnight. And I was like, yes, I did it. And so then, you know, I, that's what got me started. And then I found this like scam coin called Ethereum because, you know, it's like Bitcoin's a thousand and this other one's seven. And I'm like, oh God, like this is just another one. Try I didn't understand altcoins or that there was even any other tokens at the time. I thought there was just Bitcoin and Ethereum. I was like, okay, well, I guess this guy's trying to make a run for it. And so I completely ignored it for like a couple of weeks, but then uh, I kept seeing it on Coinbase. I was like, well, I guess I could buy one for 10 bucks. It feels a lot better than one for that. You know, this is just the mental psychology of crypto. I started researching it and I, I, I discovered what a smart contract was. And it my my brain literally exploded. I, I, I've been tinkering with code for a long time. I'm not a coder, but I understand it. Or I had not been a coder, but I understood it. And I actually got this crazy idea, literally like, Days after finding out about Ethereum, like my, my best friend had had a child and I was like, okay, we're going to try something reckless here. I, I'm not going to buy my friend like diapers for his kid. You know, I just can't. And so what I did is I wrote the smart contract and it locked 10 Ethereum into the smart contract for something like 600 million seconds, which was going to be the kid's 18th birthday, like to the moment that the kid was born. And um, I sent I sent my friend a private key to the... Uh, to the receiving wallet. And I said, Hey, on her 18th birthday, you can trigger this transaction. The 10th is going to go to the wallet. And you know, it was a hundred bucks. Like it, it wasn't that reckless because it was just a hundred bucks. But you know, I was like, this is either going to be worth like a stick of gum or it's going to be worth a house one or the other. Like it, I, I don't, I don't know. And it worked. It took me some time to build the code. It's like seven lines of code. It's very easy, like, you know, to, to, to write stuff like that. And, and yeah, it, it, proved something to me that you can make money smart and set rules and regulations and processes for money. And that that's kind of like how I got deep, deep, mm. deep into the space. Fast forward six months, I'm, you know, kind of understanding smart contracts better, understanding 
you know, I'd kind of mentioned to friends of mine that, you know, you could do something like a magic, the gathering, somehow you could prove that you owned a card, but I couldn't really put my finger on it. I definitely am not taking any credit for even understanding what a NFT was at the time. And then CryptoPunks launched uh, in June of 2017 and it all clicked. And I was like, yep, this is actually, this is, you know, and I haven't looked back ever since I've been spending way more time than any human should in the NFT space since literally the day that I played my crypto points. It's been a lot of fun. Ceramic tiles into crypto <laughs> art is quite a transition. It's That should be like the title of, of your memoir <laughs> if you ever do one. Um, I, I want to make sure that we mention that you are the inaugural recipient of a Crypti, oh, man. Uh, this new yeah. kind of award ceremony that Decrypt Studios is putting on. And they describe the inaugural award as contributions to the space. So I thought it took a chance to ask you, I mean, do you sort of have a responsibility there? Do you do you view yourself that way as one of the leading voices and and as such, you know, and in fact just just today as we interview you, you did a kind of thread warning people about, look, if anyone's asking you to click something or or enter your wallet info, don't ever do it. Um do you, do you see a responsibility there to be a, a leading voice that, that guides people? I didn't initially, you know, I, I like to say that I think a lot of people that claimed CryptoPunks had no financial expectation of value. I mean, and if they did, they're just way smarter than I am, right? Like to me, it was just like, did I just spend this much money on gas on claiming these like pictures? And so for a long time, it was literally, I think, you know, the the just the most pure, nerdy level of participation. And I I projected the same onto everybody else in the space, realizing now that that was not necessarily the case for everybody else in the space. And people started to capitalize very early on what was happening. Now I do consider myself someone that, um, you know, as an innovator and a pioneer in this space, A, not a lot of people have been in this space for five years and uh, it feels like an eternity, especially in our crypto space. But B, you know, I, I feel like I'm not one that's been financially driven in my life. Like, I mean, I've always, you know, I, I had my tile company. I, I, I would never have called myself wealthy, but I was comfortable and I was happy, you know, and like, I didn't really need anything else in my life. And so I feel like I've been able to approach this space from a truly like just excitement for the technology, excitement for the art, excitement for, and I think that it gives me a, it allows me to have a perspective that's very, very long-term. And so I do believe, you know, that crypto will transcend this echo chamber and will become every single day life for just about everybody on the planet in one way or another. And for it to be that, it means that we can't actually call it crypto or even refer to it anymore. It's just going to be the way that we operate. And I, I, I've always felt that way. When I, when I decided that I wanted to create art blocks, I, you know, I, I did this checklist of like, am I creating something that could not exist if it weren't for crypto? Am I square peg round hole something shoving it into the space because that's what people did in 2017 and 18 with the ICOs. It's just like, let's crypto, crypto, blockchain, blockchain. And I, I, I look back now and I think, yeah, like it was not intentional. Art blocks was never meant. It was a hobby. I never expected it to turn into what it is today. And I think as a sequence of those events, I do feel like I've made some contributions to the space and I'm incredibly uh, humbled to receive that award. I mean, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a very special thing for me and I'm, yeah, thank you, guys. You mentioned the the long term view there. I've often thought that the purpose of well, one of the purposes of art is to explore the potential of new technologies. What can we do with these things? What, let's test the boundaries. Let's see what we can actually uh, what we can do with these things. And with NFTs, we're we're starting to see them being used for like more mundane 
use cases, you know, ticketing and that sort of thing. So what place does NFT have as NFTs become commoditized, as it becomes part of the the everyday scene, as crypto becomes more commoditized, if you like? I think NFTs were the lowest friction, sorry, NFT art or crypto powered art, blockchain art was the lowest friction use case of the concept of a non-fungible token. It's the easiest for the world to wrap their brain around and understand, myself included. Like it literally was able to click based on that. I think eventually your mortgage will be on a blockchain. I, I think eventually the title to your home will be on a blockchain simply from the from the simplicity of being able to establish a will and avoid the intense and awkward moments that happen when someone passes away. I mean, that alone in and of itself feels like, you know, when we talk about the blockchain being black and white and brutal, like that's actually, I think, what people envision that they will leave behind is a very simple, clean, and in reality, that's nothing like that, right? And so, you know, even for that reason alone, I think there's like a real beauty in in, in that. But ultimately, we, we want this to be art in and of itself. And something that, you know, I think makes a lot of people cringe is the idea that I, I think that during the insanity of last year, maybe 60 to 70% of the value of the NFT was attributed and assigned to the technology that is NFT. And maybe 30% was the value of the content. And as the technology proliferates, you absolutely must assign additional value to the content based on the technology that's proving ownership and provenance and all this stuff. But to me, that shouldn't be more than like 5%. Right. Like, yes, I like NFTs because when I ship it to my friend, I don't have to worry about it. The corner being blown out of a piece of art. So there is technical objective value to an NFT. That is homeostasis. When we are only assigning value to the technology based on like pure technical facts, like people assume that, you know, scarcity is a thing in the NFT space. No, there's going to be trillions of NFTs one day. So, you know, as people are, start to understand how many NFTs there are and how many there will be, as people start to understand that it's purely a technology meant to elevate or make a process that existed previously easier to, to participate in and, and celebrate, you know, the, the advancements that NFT technology brings to the art world, where people will start to assign the value of what they're purchasing to the content, to the artist, to the platform, and less to the fact that it's an NFT. And, you know, I, I spent a, a, a week in Basel, Switzerland a couple of weeks ago, and I made a very, very deliberate point not to use the term NFT, to use blockchain-powered art. Or uh, just, I mean, art for the most part. But, you know, think about if, if I bought a photograph right now and you sent it to me as an attachment to an email, how incredibly deflating that would be versus you sending me like an Ethereum transaction that shows it appearing in my wallet. Like there's no way that I, as a technologist in this space, would find it satisfying, much less acceptable for you to sell me a work of digitally native art as an attachment to an email period. Like I will not be your customer for that kind of art. And I'm not trying to be like snobby about it. It just doesn't make any sense that something natively digital would not be tracked and authenticated by the technology that's being provided to us. So, you know, we, 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 we thrived last year on the innovation and the novelty of the technology. And I think that's fantastic, but that eventually needs to simmer down and let that be just the infrastructure, the plumbing 
for why our world works in a more trustless, decentralized, transparent way. And that is going to happen. Humans aren't going to wake up and say, let's let's obfuscate everything again. And little by little, it will proliferate into every part of our life. So picking up on that, you've also talked previously about trying to evolve the way that communities exist around art. How are you approaching that? How do you see communities evolving around art? Well, you know, I, I didn't expect what happened with our block to happen, right? And I think that what happened is this brilliant, beautiful, new way to celebrate the birth of a work of art. And more importantly, in terms of community, it's like, you know, a community of 10 is great, but only six people participate. And out of those six, one of them is just really stubborn and one of them is really opinionated. And then you're just like, I don't even want to be a part of that community anymore. When you have a community of a thousand, you have just a nice diverse community of people to interact with and talk about, whether it's people that want to talk about the price or people that want to talk about the art. The product market fit of generative art is just so beautiful in that one artist can, with one action, produce a thousand, ten thousand, one day a million independent, unique, individual works of art without manually having to do it. So one artist can't sit there and make 25,000 individual paintings in their lifetime and they all be, you know, fit within the same rules and the same standards. I mean, just paint alone is going to change over time. And what, what generative art does is it enables that to exist. It enables a larger community to exist at, at, at a time when an artist is an early up and coming artist, it fully democratizes access to the art because it's not usually extremely expensive to acquire art from that artist. It allows, especially with an up-and-coming artist that doesn't sell out in two minutes, it allows a community to form over time. It allows you to get, you know, a yellow one and be like, man, I just saw a red one that someone got. I want a red one. But then that means I'm going to end up with a green one and a red one. All of a sudden I have three framed prints on my wall that demonstrate the breadth of a collection. It, it's just something that's, um, it's an evolution in the way that communities and artists experience art. The blockchain is 100% responsible for that, going back to the way the CryptoPunks were distributed. And yeah, I think that we're only scratching the surface of these new dynamic ways for people to interact and celebrate not just art, but video games. And you know, I fully believe that generative manufacturing will be a thing of the future, that you know, your coffee table won't be the same as your neighbor's coffee table, even if you all buy it from the same place. Because why if if I can have something that is unique to me and still fits within the standards of what I like about that piece. Why would I want it to be unique? And, and so, you know, I think that we're just kind of scratching the surface with the lowest friction, which is just pixels on a screen and the world will evolve around this concept of individuality that, you know, we're, we're thriving in right now. Never mind your coffee table. How about your coffee blend? Hey, there you go too. Yeah. Or a pizza, you know, we I just know. sold out on a generative pizza project on our blocks, but like, yeah. you know, there is a world where like you, click mint and it generates a pizza for you with all the toppings and it comes right out. I love not everyone having the same items. You know, I always say, um, you know, that's the one, that's the reason I like wearing a watch that isn't just an Apple watch with, with all respect to Apple watch people. It's like, you already have the same phone as everyone else. You have the same iPad, you have the same computer, same coffee table from Pottery Barn. So I, I like that, that idea. I also agree with you, Eric. I think eventually a lot of the jargon we use will just go away, but it will take people getting so used to the tech you know, everything will just be a token, if that even, but we'll stop saying NFT versus, you know, <laughs> this is a smart contract or, you know, this is a layer one or a layer two. I think a lot of the 
technical terms will stop being used in the vernacular. This has been so much fun. We've, we've gone so long, so we got to wrap it up. But let's end on this though, Eric. We always like to ask guests, what's something in crypto that interests and excites you right now, totally separate from what you do? Is there something you see in the crypto world, kind of non-NFT or maybe non-NFT art that, that you are I'm living about? in under a rock, man. I, I literally am living and breathing all of this. And <laughs> to me, the killer use case of blockchain technology or a killer use case of blockchain technology is the NFT. Right. So it's hard to separate from the NFT space, not separating from the NFT art world and just, you know, the utilization of NFTs, I think is I think is, you know, I love what the, what's happening with DAOs. And actually, I do have one thing. I think that the the brilliant effort and work that's going into technology behind charitable giving using the blockchain, which actually doesn't generate an NFT, at least not at the moment. So for example, an organization called Endowment, which I was recently lucky enough to get to participate in a, in a fundraise of because, you know, way before there was any opportunity to fundraise or to participate in that, like I found myself donating to a insane amount of different organizations in a meaningful way because they made it so easy to do it. And the other thing that's really beautiful about that is that, you know, I'm not the kind of person that donates and then like tweets about it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those people that do, but at the same time, when I have been called out on, on whether I'm giving to a uh, charity or not, there's a beautiful transaction on the blockchain that proves that I did. And so, and, and oftentimes I tell those people it's none of their business, but if eventually it does get to a point where it could affect my personal reputation as an artist or even art blocks as a, as an organization, it's so critical to be able to say, yeah, not only did I not just react to yesterday's news, but here's, you know, last year's contributions to organizations that I believe in. And to me, that is a second killer use case for blockchain technology. We had, we had a donor advice fund at Artblocks that we kind of are going to turn into the Artblocks Foundation. We're really excited about it. Uh, and, you know, it's a wonderful organization that's hosting it for us. The idea that all of that happens on the blockchain, to me, is just so brilliant. Like you donate to the donor advice fund and then the funds are there. And then if I wake up one day and I'm like, I want to give to XYZ, I just go on there and I click and I give and it just happens. And I think there's, you know, maybe I've been very fortunate to be able to give in large amounts, but organizations like that also enable people to give smaller amounts, like a hundred bucks and 500 bucks. And I, I think that's something that uh, will actually revolutionize the entire social impact charitable giving industry as a whole. So really excited about organizations like them and like the giving block. And there's others that have, that have really meaningfully contributed to the space. Uh, very cool. Well, Snowfro, Eric Calderon, thanks so much. Great chat. Thanks for joining us. This has been GM from Decrypt. I'm Dan Roberts. I'm Stacey Elliott. And I'm Stephen Graves. GM is a Decrypt podcast produced by Red Rock Music. Our executive producer is Red Yoakum. Our associate producer is Emma Martins. And our audio engineer is Enrique Inahosa. For more from Decrypt, go to decrypt.co or download our mobile app. Subscribe and review us wherever you listen, and we'll meet you back here next time for more crypto conversation. GM. GM.